Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Ruck, the rugby podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times. So this epic season, which started in early August 2019, is finally over. Well, sort of. There are still a few fixtures from the Women's Six Nations to be played at some point, but the England ladies were able to complete the Grand Slam in style with a 54-0 win over Italy. 24 hours earlier, there was another English victory on Italian soil, which was just enough for Eddie Jones to win his third Six Nations title in five years in charge. Not a bad return. But it's France who looked like a side building nicely. They played probably the best rugby of Super Saturday. And of course, they host the World Cup in 2023. I'm Lawrence Delalio, and joining me today are Owen Slott and Stuart Barnes. Gentlemen, lovely to have you both on the ruck after uh, the final weekend of the Six Nations. I mean, it was a tournament that we kind of didn't think would ever get finished or ever get played, really. And I guess we were so excited about Super Saturday months and months ago and and COVID-19 put an end to that. But the tournament finally got to draw a a close at the end. I mean, it was a strange day, wasn't it, really? Wales going down at Parky Scarlet's 10 points to 14. Italy getting beaten in the end comfortably by England. And then, of course, the uh, probably the best game of the the day, France – beating Ireland 35-27. I think if we, if we start in that order, let's, let's start in Wales. It, it, it was Owen, it was pretty difficult to, to judge the conditions there. But I, I, somehow I was expecting a lot more from, from Wales, given that it was Alan wynne Jones's sort of uh, record-breaking game and obviously the very, very sad passing JJ at, uh, at Scarlet. So I was expecting more from Wales and I felt slightly underwhelmed, really. I wrote in the Times on Saturday that uh, I thought it was going to be a, a day of joy, a, a, a joyful celebration of rugby. And um, if there was w- one article in the last few months I could rewrite, I'd have a go at that because I got that completely wrong, didn't I? I do you know, I, I just find the whole weekend hard to assess because there are so many factors that influence it, such as rustiness. They hadn't played it. It was the last weekend of the, of the Six Nations, but really it was the first. Conditions were, were hard to guess in Wales because we don't even know if the commentary team were actually there in place or were they guessing it from a studio um, yeah, they were 100 there, miles away. No, they, they well, they were, well, well done them. And the other thing was, well, as we know, there was no crowds and... 
and I just I'm I'm wondering about the impact of that on 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 the players and and you know we, we we've seen we've seen that in in club games but but how, how, does it affect the international rugby in, in a different way? Yeah, I mean I think you're right. You know that I'm I'm a big fan of of the emotional side of the game, and obviously when you take the fans away from the stadium, that you know you have to create your own emotion um, going into the contest. Um, it's not like this was the first time the players were playing in front of no one. I was just surprised that, you know, everyone talks quite understandably and quite glowingly about Alan Wynne-Jones and what a great captain he is. I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. But if he's such a great captain, then surely you'd want to pull out one of your best ever performances for him to mark the, uh, you know, the record-breaking game that he had. Given the, um, you know, the tragic loss of of, uh, of JJ going into that game, I just thought Wales could have could have really used you know, all of that to, to drive their performance emotionally. And, it, and in the end, we got, I thought, a very disappointing and flat performance from Wales. And maybe I'm not giving enough credit to Scotland, who uh, certainly picked things up. I think there's the discrepancy between new and old management in Wales. And not just that PVAC wants a more-minded way, which has obviously impacted upon their defence quite badly, but also, as you know, much better than Owen and myself, Warren and Sean play the emotions. And I think, you knowing Pivac a little bit, Pivac's a very different sort of coach. He's forensic and he's just looking to open the field up there. And I think Wales are still caught between what was and what hasn't quite arrived yet. And the other thing I would say, um, I'm a huge fan of, of Alan Wynne-Jones. I think he arguably should have been the Wales captain five years before he was. But Saturday reminded me who the most underestimated rugby player in the British Isles and Ireland is, and that's Justin Tipperick. If you watch Alan Wynne-Jones when he's playing for Wales, those double tackles, the turnovers, who's always there? And who's the man sort of carrying, changing the game for Wales? Tipperick was missed so badly. And, and that match in the end, you know, I felt that at the breakdown, it was one on, on the, the blow of a whistle. And I felt quite rightly, Scotland's back row decimated Wales and the hole that Tipperick left was gigantic. There'll certainly be inquest down in Wales now. I don't know how many games that is that they've that they've gone without a win. But um, five, five. That's yeah. you know, that's that's a lot, isn't it, for, uh, for for a team like Wales and with such a demanding public? I mean, what what of Scotland? I mean, they they had a difficult season last year. You know, Gregor Townsend had some issues off the field that he was dealing with. An unsuccessful World Cup largely of their own making, well, by opening their mouth inappropriately. But they've really come back, haven't they, strongly. Uh, you know, some, some really good performances across the Scottish team. And it was ironic that it, having got Finn Russell back on the field, unfortunately, he wasn't able to stay on there. But uh, they, looked, uh, they looked strong, Scotland, given that, uh, you know, the season they've had last year. What they've done, which, which they haven't really done before, is that if they managed to out-muscle and, and out-physical Wales, and during the Gatlin years, that, that was unthought of. You know, that, that's what Wales brought to a game, wasn't it? The, the, the Warren Ball, if you want to use the old cliche. And um, Scotland had a, had a scrum that beat Wales. I, I think Wales have got a generation of the best back rowers in the world, arguably, but... You, you would certainly not have known it. I mean, Barnes has already made the point about Justin Tipperick, but um, it was well, Richie, Scottish... Richie was probably the standout back row forward on the on the field. Actually, as much as I'm I'm a massive fan of Tipperick, uh, Richie's I'd been agree. outstanding. Uh, I'd agree really. with you in the in the um 
in the Times team, team of the tournament today, Richie's um, Rich name, name there. I th- thought he was brilliant. And Hamish Watson is, is also great. But you, I just think you look at the, the resources that Wales have, have got. Navidi was injured. Ellis Jenkins is on his way back somewhere, we hope. But they, they had the, um, the new, oh, I'm going to get his name completely wrong, Shane Lewis Hughes. Come on, Barnsley, sort me out. Yeah, right. he, how good was it? Well, there was a glimpse of him. I mean, he's been... Terrific debut. Just to go back to what I was just saying about, about the fans thing, that was a, a really tight knife-edge game. It was also, as you said, Lawrence, it was a complete dog of a game and it was not entertaining to watch. But if you had fans in there roaring those teams on with, with like one, one point separating them for, or whatever for, for, for much of that match, we might have been thinking, oh, that was a, that was a great classic Six Nations encounter. But, but uh, as a pure rugby game, it wasn't. It was dross. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Actually, uh, the first half was entirely unforgettable, uh, and the second half was uh, a tiny bit better. But listen, Scotland will take that certainly, and, uh, and Wales, as I said, have got some some real thinking to do. Let's let's move on to England. I mean, it's it's fair to say it's a rusty looking England that did enough to claim the bonus point win in Italy, and with it, Eddie Jones's third title in uh, in five years. You know, whether you like that or not, that's a a pretty healthy return, given that England had one title in 12 years before Eddie Jones turned up. So they really were in the wilderness. And if you were looking at it through rose-tinted spectacles, you'd say that Eddie Jones has taught them how to win again, taught them how to be comfortable building. But I guess it was always going to be a challenge because it's the first time, I can, you know, to, to your point earlier on, it's the first time that England have played together for seven months, that Barbarians warm-up game. I was part of the ITV commentary team um, and I said that the... First half was their warm-up game, really. They got that out of the way, and that was their excuse, if you like. And then the second half, I guess they, they came out and, and did just about enough. But um, are, are we being unkind? I mean, in, in the sense that, you know, we should probably be a little bit more forgiving of their build-up uh, and the injuries that they had, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you looked at that team, and there were 635 caps out on the, on the field in the starting lineup. You know, and, and the fascinating thing, which I think Eddie Jones has mentioned, is you've got this England team that have got a player who's celebrating his 100th cap, you've got a, a player who's celebrating his 50th cap, and then you've got four players who are celebrating their first cap. So, you know, you, you've got this kind of whole range of transition going on with this Eddie Jones team. I'm fascinated to get, you, you know, both of your take on it. Stuart, I'm sure you you probably expected a little bit better, but in the end, just about satisfied with, with what you saw. Absolutely unsatisfied, dissatisfied, I should say. Um, and by the way, Owen, Owen Slot, correspondent of the Times, saying Scotland out physical Wales. Owen, yeah, out physical. Are we going to see that in print? Can we not have fun with language? Isn't that what, what our job is? All right. Oh, well, I, I, I withdraw it. You've exposed me, and, I, and oh, I'm ashamed. It shocked me, Owen. It's not normally. Anyway, going away from there, I was uh, deeply dissatisfied with England, Lawrence. All you say is true, but Italy had youngsters playing and Italy had gone two or four games without scoring a point, have conceded 50 to a pretty mediocre island team. They're terrible. They didn't even have a Roman crowd to just light them up for 20 minutes. The other thing is, we either take Eddie Jones's words at face value or we utterly ignore them and stop using them in commentary boxes and we stop writing about them. Eddie Jones said, we have not missed a beat with the Barbarians game cancelled. We had a fantastic game behind closed doors. So Eddie is either telling an absolute porky 
or England were awful. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to say that, but we can't say England are rusty because England's manager says they weren't rusty. So do we just ignore him? As for England themselves, I felt that we got the cut to the quick of all of England's problems. And that is they are driven so centrally by Jones that there's no flexibility. Jones had a plan. It was to kick pressure on Italy and to grind them down. The try after four minutes illustrated that if England had kept the ball in hand, they could have hammered them. But they didn't keep the ball in hand because Eddie's selection of Henry Slade and Joseph, two non-bashing centres, meant that he couldn't get that little ball out in the Tuolangi way to cross the game line. Jones's game plan was predicated on picking an imbalanced midfield and knowing that Italy would crumble in the end. They did crumble in the end, but not because England were any good at all. And as for three Six Nations titles at a Grand Slam in five years, yes, that reads well. But is that more in praise of Eddie Jones or an indictment of the mediocrity that followed Clive Woodward for so long, the failed coaches? I, I think it's a little bit more the latter than the former. Yeah, I mean, I thought that the selection, and I wrote this, that the selection was a bit conservative, but maybe we should expect that from a team that hadn't played together for seven months. He wanted to go out there with a lot of experience. Now, I mean, I'm going to ask you this question. Eddie Jones's selection baffles a lot of people, myself included, because there's a lot of obvious selection options in front of him. And for whatever reason, he chooses to ignore them. And he refuses to look at the obvious. The obvious being the Simmons brothers, Jack Willis, Max Malins at fullback, you know, a number of obvious choices. I guess he would argue, well, look, I'm, I'm here to uh, not to pick the team that, that you guys want. I'm here to pick the, the best team. You've got to say to yourself, George Furbank was a, was a curious selection when he was uh, picked. Uh, it was even more curious that he was then played in his debut away against France. And even more curious that Eddie Jones then decided to wind France up in the lead up to that game. And I've watched a lot of George Furbank. I like him as a player. I think there's a, there's, there's a lot to admire there. But at no point have I ever felt that I've seen a player there that I think looks comfortable at international level at the moment. And I thought to, to, to have picked him again, I think is almost, uh, it feels quite stubborn to me from Eddie Jones that he just wants to say, well, I picked this guy, I saw something in him and I, and I, want, to, I want to prove you all wrong. Eddie says it's fine, so we have to believe Eddie. The other thing there, England went out, England, they won the tournament, that performance and that result was a failure because I, I don't know what you think, Owen, England didn't go there thinking, well, force Ireland to win by six points. England went there trying to make sure Ireland had to go and win by 20-odd points and close it down. And they were so flat that they failed. You know, that Eddie Jones, without the Eddie Jones structure, because he was so conservative or so clever in putting Henry Slade and Joseph at 12 and 13, that he didn't put Lawrence in. Lawrence might not be the world's greatest player, but it's like New Zealand losing a, a good player five years ago and, and not picking Lamape because he's not at. Lawrence did the ident- does the identical job to Tuolangi from an England perspective. Maybe even do a little bit more in some ways. But Eddie absolutely ignored the whole structure of what Eddie has been telling us for years is the way he likes teams to play. Interestingly, we would probably all agree that Eddie Jones's best England team 
was probably the two performances that stand out for me, uh, not not just in Eddie Jones's era, but probably any England era, were were away to Ireland in Dublin and the All Blacks semi final, where where they reached heights that I haven't seen many England teams reach ever. In that team, he had um, Farrell, Tuilangi, and Slade. Um, you know, in that order, ten. 10, 12, 13. And it just seemed strange that he would move away from that. And the other big question mark I've got, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm happy England have won the Six Nations title. I'm pleased for Eddie Jones. I'm, I'm delighted for the England team, especially the, the four guys who made their debut. All these things are lovely. Ben Young's 100th cap, amazing. Jamie George, 50th cap. But there is a, a worry for me that the um, certainly in the, in the back row, there's still some questions, aren't there, really? How does he get the best out of Billy Vanapolo, who I thought, you know, Unfortunately, was was way off what, what the, the standards that he set himself, and and uh, you know how does it how does he get the best out of that team? I, I've just sort of been listening to to you two miserablists over the last sort of two or three minutes, sort of uh, knocking and, and whinging away, and um, uh, for for once, I find myself in this rare position of not feeling it's the right time to um to complain about um uh, Eddie Jones and his extraordinary weirdness as a select as a selector. I mean, you, you mentioned his selections, Lawrence. We, someone's going to have to write a book about the strange selections of Eddie Jones uh, over his uh, now five years for England. George Furbank is is an extraordinary pick. He was not Barnsley picked to out physical Italy, that's for sure. <laughs> that said, Eddie Eddie's had a, a lot of weird selections, but I I remember when um, he took a tour to Argentina in 2017 and writing that it was just bizarre that he was taking these two curry boys and this kid called Cockada Singer that we'd never heard of, who were all about 12, and he turned them into, uh, into um, well, very nearly um, World Cup-winning internationals in a pretty short time. Just in terms of where, where England are now, I mean, S- S- Saturday was, was such an average performance, and there's no two ways about it, but you know, if you if you look at the Six Nations as a whole, I mean, Lawrence, you picked out those two um, epic England performances against Ireland and and then the all the All Blacks in the World Cup. The the two England games, um, the end of the, the 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 real phase of the Six Nations against Ireland and then Wales, they were pretty damn good then as well. Against Ireland, they for for like sixty minutes, they were really really hot, nearly as good as they were against the All Blacks. Uh, obviously, different opposition. So, ah, should we should we be should we be worried? Or I think England are, are going forward uh, at a reasonable pace in the right direction. That was their first game for seven months. I think you'll see. Um, uh, Eddie said, I'll, "I'll never, I'll never experiment." The last experiment I did was in a biology class at school. But I think you'll see different players coming in against Georgia and over the next month. And um, and I think you'll see you'll see Lawrence bedded in more. And uh, we'll do this podcast at the end of the Autumn Nations Cup. And I'll probably concede again that I got that wrong too. Can I ask you two a question? So Eddie, again, Barnsley was saying, should should we actually bother listening to what Eddie says um, Uh or should we ignore? Fair point. But Eddie said on on the eve of the the game, and the players have said it themselves, that they see it as their responsibility, particularly now, to to, to lift the nation and put a smile on people's faces. So my question to you is, by winning the Six Nations and beating Italy, is that mission accomplished or... Does that suggest that they should be playing a brand of rugby that is more uplifting? It was just a poor performance. And if that's a performance to bring a smile to my face as an Englishman because of what we're going through, then I am in a very deep <laughs> hole indeed. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, sportsmen should play. We don't need to hear this nonsense. It's just, it, it's, it's cliche brand, not rubbish. 
all of that smile on the face. It was Italy away. If England had beaten New Zealand or England had beaten the Springboks in Johannesburg, maybe, but come on. We're trying as hard as we can to forget who the opposition was. And the opposition are awful. And that goes all the way back then to why was Eddie so conservative? Oh, by the way, Owen, on the point of knocking on uh, Eddie, I think he gets as much right in selection as he gets wrong. I think switching Curry to try and make him into a second string eight is clever. I think Joseph against Ireland on the wing was brilliant. We all got that wrong except for Eddie Jones. But if you praise him when he gets it right, you've also... I mean, he opens himself up to a belittlement when you pick, as Lawrence says, Furbank over Malins. And when Henry Slade is moved to 12 and Jonathan Joseph is outside him, so Eddie's entire raison d'etre as a rugby coach is ripped up and torn away. I'm keen for England. This is an this is now an experienced group of players. Aside from the from obviously there's some some new caps coming in and, and and bringing some some new people through the squad. But if you look at the the heart of the team, you know you've got Jamie George, Vanapola, uh, Itoji. You know these are guys, Ben Youngs, um, multiple caps, and I just think the responsibility and direction of that team needs to be rebalanced a bit more. I mean Eddie Jones has, has been with this this group for a long time, yet. It's still him that takes centre stage in the build-up to the games, and I just, having been involved in a lot of teams, I, I do feel that the uh, players can drive the narrative of how they want to play and what they're trying to do on the field in the build-up to the games. And all we got this week was was Billy Vanapola telling us that his headspace wasn't in the right place in the World Cup final, which, quite frankly, I'm not particularly happy with. If you know, if that was the case, don't admit it in the in the build-up to a game. Um, and he and he's going to you know come out smiling and uh, and and try and play well and he he did neither so you know I, I think the players need to take uh, and this isn't a criticism it's just something that I think that I don't know whether it's the relationship between Eddie and his players is obviously clearly a very good one they like him he likes them but when it comes to how they play and what they do both in the build up to the game and over the eighty minutes it's Eddie Jones it's not it's not enough about them and I think it took until half time for them to get into the the, the, the dressing room and, and change the way that they played, kick the ball 25 times in the first half. So I do, I think there's so much more to come from this England team. Maratoji said it himself, you know, we're only just getting started. Well, please let's get started. And, and you guys take more control, more responsibility over how you want to play the game and, and the rhetoric and the language that you use in the build up to, to a big test match. For me, the, the intriguing thing was what you've just pointed out that, England's old shortcomings of not being able to change on the hoof were there right before our eyes. I mean, the the, the tactical straitjacket they were in, almost plainer to see than ever. And as you say, it required yeah. it required them to go in and sit down at half time to talk about it as if they hadn't thought about it beforehand. That that was sad. And and as you say, it, it, I, I think it's related to Eddie's autonomy. But the but the the weird thing, or the sort of the, the fascinating sort of psychological dilemma of of that team is they talk endlessly about breaking out of that autonomous grip and 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 taking control and being able to think on their feet. But here we are, five years in, and they're and they're still not managing it. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss we want to finish on a positive England have won their third championship in five years but they probably won it no, no disrespect to France but France finished uh, runners up on points difference following a bonus point victory of their own against Ireland. And to many of us, and certainly to Sean Edwards, if they'd managed to keep 15 players on the field during the championship, they probably would be celebrating a Grand Slam. It's probably just as well for France that they haven't won a Grand Slam yet, because with a Grand Slam comes grand expectations. And there's no doubt that France are are building something pretty powerful and uh, almost as, as powerful as a good Bordeaux, you know, red wine, really. But they, in in uh, in their halfback combination, they've got two of the best players in the world right now uh, in their positions. It's the first time that they've had a settled selection. In I think they've picked the same halfback pairing quite a few matches now, having never picked the same halfback pairing for about ten years. So that they really do look like a side that are building nicely and and uh, coming to the boil. And I think there's there's a lot more to come from this French team. And and everyone keeps saying, you know, it's great to have France back. You know, the whole of world rugby's needed France back. Boy, have they taken their time, but but it's been well worth the wait. France have been facing shadows for too long, trying to be England, trying to be disciplined. In a way, the red card in Edinburgh, the red card in Tokyo against Wales. It sums up a, a, a French rugby culture that is extremely macho. And, and Bernard Laporte, when he was in charge, did try and eradicate it. And he did such a good job that the free spirit of French rugby went with it. And I think that's a real problem. I watch this team now. I wrote about it today. I, I watched the running lines and the speed of, of ball from breakdown and instead of Laporte and his quasi-Anglo-Saxon obsessions, we have Pierre Vilpreux, who, who is a magnificent free thinker about the game, a long stride in fullback whose essence of coaching is all about support. It's very similar to New Zealand at their best. 
And we saw that. And what I like about France is clearly there are major deficiencies. The amount of penalties kept an inferior island in the game, uh, a ridiculous uh, instinctive yellow card. They haven't sorted those out and they don't want to sort them out necessarily quite yet, Lol, because as you say, you know, France are both eyes on 2023. And, and I go back to your team, you know, the Wembley game against Wales. You should have won a Grand Slam a year earlier. Your, your captain said, let's go to the corner and wipe the Welsh noses in it instead of going for goal. I can't remember who it was. Scotland, Matt Dawson and, and long lineouts. You learn from these errors. And, and France, are, right now, they, they, they would have liked to have won a title, but it doesn't really matter. Galtier, Ibanez and Edwards are so set upon winning in 2023. I, I think... The flaws in the French game at the moment are just as useful long-term to them uh, as the exciting uh, running we are seeing from France. And the other thing is they've got a lot of strength in depth. They have got they don't have another scrum half anywhere near Antoine Dupont, but they've got three or four players who are really good. And, you know, Entermac has been absolutely brilliant, but he's going to have to stay there because Jalibert is right there knocking on the door for selection. So. France haven't had an outside half for 15 years since I had dark hair. Now they've got two. Barnes, you you mentioned Jalibert. Well, two years ago when Entermac was still playing in, in... Under twenties competition, mm. he wasn't even he wasn't even the number ten in that in that um, team because they had another another number ten who thought they, they thought was just as good. That's Louis Carbonell from, yeah. from Toulon. So so I I think they they've got these players pouring through. They were, they won the world under twenties in twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen as we know, and we've only just seen the first graduates of those two teams come up through into um into the senior team. So I just think it's. Phenomenally exciting, and there's more of this to come. When Clyde Woodward took over the England team in 1997, I think the Southern Hemisphere, although they wouldn't openly admit it, you know, that if you ask them the question, who who who's the sleeping giant of world rugby right now? And he he probably, you know, they would say it was probably England. Now it took a took a while for that for that sleeping giant to wake up. It took six years, and we got there in the end in 20, 2003. You know, if you ask the same question now, that the sleeping giant for many years has been France because they've been so below what they're what, what where they should be that uh, it just needed the right the right people doing the right things to, to come along and if you look at the spine of that team now when you've got players like Marshawn at hooker Greg Aldrit who they've just found um, who's been a, for, for probably the best number eight in the tournament without a shadow of a doubt you know the nine and the ten Dupont Dupont plays rugby from a, from a different planet at the moment and he, he's just been sensational uh, Entermat, you can only see getting better and better. Vakitawa, they've got so much talent coming through, and and you guys have mentioned the others as well. They seem to be picking the, the players in the right positions, which again is is very unFrench. Um, but they've worked, <laughs> they've worked out that uh, if a guy plays number eight every week, that's probably the position he wants to play for, for his country, and and the same in, in in other positions. So I think if everyone picked their team of the tournament, I can't remember the last time I, I put a Frenchman in my team of the tournament actually. And then this year, I found it really hard to leave a Frenchman out of the team of the tournament. So uh, you know they they certainly had over half the team. And they deserve it because the way that they've played throughout this uh, this competition. So very exciting. Let's see where this autumn international series takes us. Because for France, they've had you know two decent performances. England have got a rusty one out of the way. They've all got games coming up in the next few weeks, and maybe just maybe 
we, we might get an England-France final, but obviously both sides have got to play there and get there in this, in this Nations Cup. What are, you, what are you both looking forward to the most from the, from the next few weeks of, of international rugby? I'm looking forward to seeing what Jack Willis is going to do. I want to see uh, what Ollie Lawrence is going, to, is going to do. I want to see Ben Earl be given a full game because I think he's absolutely outstanding. I want to see Johnny Hill settle. All these things that I think could take the England team on uh, a, a, another step or, or, or more. I, I'm looking forward to all that. And Barnsley, for, for you? Six Nations seems to stultify some teams. They're so scared of, of not winning that they just retreat into corners. Scotland this year have had had quite difficult. Those of us who were at Murrayfield will remember one of the most appalling days weather, and it wasn't very good in Cardiff. So I've got a bit of an excuse, but I think Scotland at the moment under Gregor Townsend like an excuse to play slow ball and take absolutely no risk, no up-tempo rugby at all. I want to see them pick the pace of the game up. Also, Ireland, I think since... Andy Farrell's taken over. We've seen a, a marked decrease in box kicking from Conor Murray and, and those diagonal bombs from Johnny Sexton. But it has been replaced with a ball-carrying game that is quite slow and quite pedestrian, that lacks an offload, that lacks anything out of the ordinary. And I'm I, desperate to see France being the team who have made us think a little bit differently and think, right, let's go for quicker ball. And I want to see in particular, I I say Ireland and Scotland, because I think in particular they have not produced it. Wales, Wales know that quick ball's the answer, but they've got to find, they've got to find a type five who can carry to give them a front foot because otherwise, you know, they're just going to go backwards by playing sideways. Slotty, we're going to, um, pay homage to the uh, England women's team who claimed back-to-back Grand Slams. They won 54-0 in Italy. I mean, Simon Middleton's side look incredibly well-placed going into next year's World Cup. They've racked up quite a lot of points. Don't seem to be conceding that many. Uh, Obviously, there's still other fixtures to be played, but they've been fantastic. I mean, is their biggest challenge finding teams that are good enough to play against them so that they can can mount a serious challenge for uh, for the World Cup? The slightly disappointing side of, uh, of celebrating the success of the England women's team is, is as you say, that the, the competition in Europe is not strong enough, uh, which, which then goes into the, to, to the next conversation is, should we have a, a women's Six Nations just because it's a men's Six Nations? Should we try and create a, an annual competition that, that really challenges them more? Could they play New Zealand more often that, um, there seems to be a two-division thing here with, with New Zealand, England and France really ahead at, 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 at the top. So should we focus on something more, more like that? Um, I think it's a shame that for all the, the uh, strides that women's rugby takes forward that we, when it comes to Six Nations, w- w- you can't avoid asking the question that you just asked because it isn't a great competition. Unfortunately, that's just a fact. Well, listen, England have uh, home and away fixtures against France to complete their autumn schedule. So... Uh, we look forward to uh, to those two games. Uh, gentlemen, uh, come to that time of, of the god or goddess of the week. Um, just to give you a bit of time to think about that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the, uh, the bath hooker, Tom <laughs> Dunn, who, uh, who, who reminded all of us just how precious an international cap is to the modern-day rugby player. It was, you know, wonderful and, and, and maybe gave us an insight in, you know, we, 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 we curse social media 
for lots of things. Uh, but but if it if it wasn't for social media, we wouldn't have had that wonderful little uh, you know montage of him phoning his, his his nearest and dearest family and friends. And I just think it was wonderful. You know, the, the, the players can't can't enjoy having their family there. I was lucky enough to have my mum and dad. At Twickenham for my first cap you know I was able to share those that, those emotions you know face to face and it was just a wonderful thing to see all, all the players who have been capped and, and who have had those conversations be it European finals premiership finals you know internationals have, have, have not had that opportunity to share those those feelings and I just thought it was a wonderful moment probably gone viral uh, but it just goes to show that Playing for England is so special and it was lovely to see. And I, I congratulate him uh, and all the players who made their first caps for their respective countries. Oh, stop it, Lawrence. You're making me cry. Yeah, heartwarming as Lawrence's call is, I, I would prefer to have a five-minute clip of Antoine Dupont who would remind everyone how you should play rugby with ambition, with accuracy, with edge, with pride in a very average tournament and let's not kid ourselves it's been truncated by uh, covid in an average tournament he has been so far away the best player he finished the tournament in a, a flaky french performance in some ways but he fought, finished the, the tournament with a nine and a half out of ten he is europe's finest rugby player and he is god of the week for me but he's certainly playing rugby from the gods, no doubt about that. Owen, the final word with you. I, I, I've enjoyed both of your two submissions, but um, mine goes back to the uh, to the um, serious point that the uh, British and Irish Lions uh, next summer should become the British, Irish and Italian Lions because my God of the week is Jake Pelledry. I just love seeing when a team's down, you see the personality of one man carrying the fight back. I think that says so much. If you actually... If you want, I can back him up with a bit of stats. You wouldn't have thought that the an Italian player would have won the second most turnovers in the Six Nations, or third for offloads, or indeed third for carries. But that's all Jake Pelledri. I think he's wonderful. Can I just on that one? I did a piece on Pelledri before the Six Nations. Don't know if you remember it, Slotty. Barnsley, I remember everything you write. It's just, it's just fantastic, word for word. Yeah, but this was about this was about stats, and and as some of my colleagues may know I'm not a great stat man. But I contacted the relevant people. I said, just on stats, tell me, who are the best players in the world based on the World Cup? And they came back, and number one for the best player on planet Earth was Jake Pelledry. So, Owen, you're with the stats, boys, but I'm with you on this one. Well, he did did beat more defenders than any other player at the Rugby World Cup tournament, which... Um, he does a lot more than that, though, Long. Which is quite amazing, really. And I think there's a lot of improvement to come from, from Jake Pelledry. And Eddie Jones doesn't miss very much, but you know, that one definitely got away from him, uh, whether it was Conor O'Shea or, or, or whatever it was. You know, it would have been wonderful to see him in the, um, in the white shirt of England as opposed to the, uh, the blue of Italy. But Italian fans will be uh, delighted that he is looking like he might fill the enormous boots of Sergio Parisi gentlemen my thanks to both Owen Slot and Stuart Barnes the uh, 2019-20 season has been a marathon not a sprint but don't worry about your withdrawal symptoms the new season starts yes in just 10 days time we'll be back next Monday to look forward to that if you've enjoyed the ruck please leave us a review and you can subscribe on Acast iTunes or your usual podcast provider
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 